For example, if a population like Italy is cut in half in a generation or two, which it will be, um, that's not only going to drive economic chaos and the absolute need for something like mass migration or artificial intelligence, but it's also going to result in, well, fewer Italians. And if you like Italians, and I'm not Italian, but but you know, if I were one, I'd probably want our, our, our group to continue. You know, I'd be a little concerned about that. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the great Ricky Allpike. How are you, Ricky? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Now, Ricky, uh, I'm just going to say it. If I could edit genes and you know, make people better, I might make a better uh, podcast um, uh, your partner. <laughs> and I could be with I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be specific. Intelligence, yeah, maybe a bit more of that. Tall, you're pretty tall. I'd probably leave that how it is. Um, handsome, yeah. You got, you know, we could we could bump that up a little bit. Which <laughs> oh, pretty come good. on. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about what about you? Would you uh, would you uh, do it if you could? Come on, be honest. Uh, well, you know, if I'm getting a makeover, you should get one too. I like that. That I've decided. See, that, that's something a superhuman wouldn't have. They wouldn't have that altruism which you just uh, which you just exhibited. We're going to talk about. Uh, some of this with Jonathan Anomaly today, uh, a, a bioethicist, among other things. Fascinating topic. I'd really like to get more into this. This is um, this is juicy stuff. Yeah, it's creating superhumans. Yes, let's do it. Well, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is that we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show. It's actually a, a pretty good way to get in contact with us. Word of mouth is also very powerful, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now, on with the show. Jonathan Anomaly is the Academic Director of the Centre for Philosophy, Politics and Economics in Quito, Ecuador. After a decade of teaching at Duke and Penn, Jonathan left the American Academy citing ideological capture. Jonathan's book, Creating Future People, The Ethics of Genetic Enhancement, explores the social implications of emerging reproductive technologies, including embryo selection. Jonathan, welcome to The New Flesh. Thanks. Good to be here. So, Jonathan, the more I listen to your highly intelligent discussions, it occurs to me that in the future in which we have full control of embryo selection, the world will be populated by more people like you and less of me. Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, yeah, let's see. I think I think the world is going to get a little bit weirder rather than necessarily better or smarter. Not that I'm agreeing with you that I'm smarter than you, but um, yeah, I, I'm more and more convinced that we're going to be diverging in many different directions here, so... Well, would you mind giving us an insight into your into your background before we get into the the juice of things? Uh, sure. Um, let's see here. I mean, I was an academic, pretty pretty normal academic for about fifteen years. Um, didn't really get into any kind of trouble until circa twenty eighteen. You know, had the, the usual duties, writing articles, teaching classes, that sort of thing. And uh, as the the great awakening, as some people call it, the kind of big revolution kicked into full gear circa 2017, 2018, uh, started getting into little bits of trouble, not with my students, um, but with random, you know, journalists, uh, students who like to, you know, start controversies, that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, over the last five years, things have taken quite a different turn. And a couple of years ago during COVID, toward the end of COVID, 
I chose to leave the American Academy for good, as you mentioned. And um, that just coincided with a friend of mine winning an election in Ecuador. It's actually the, the advisor to the president of Ecuador. And when he won that position, he invited me to come down there. And I thought, great, like th there's nothing I'd rather do than get out of the United States for a little while. This was 2021. So so yeah, that's that's what ended up happening. I had the the usual academic career. I still have an academic career, but I'm going to be stepping aside from that soon, going into the private sector. So we'll pick through a few little things. Now, you've been described as a pro-natalist. What is pro-natalism? Sure. Pro-natalism is just the view that um, we aren't having enough children to to maintain the population or, or certainly increase it. Um, not a very controversial view, I don't think, but it's controversial, I guess, among some in, in the world of journalism and academia, because ever since the 1970s, as you guys know, people have worried about overpopulation, and that was never really a justified worry even then. The West had already stopped reproducing above replacement rates, but now we have such steeply declining birth rates that it's an actual crisis. Just doing the math and thinking about where we'll be in 50 to 100 years. You guys have seen Elon Musk tweet about it. So it's getting sort of mainstream now. But yeah, five or 10 years ago, the term pronatalism was coined just to designate people who think this is a problem. We need to recognize it and figure out how to incentivize people to have more children. If I brought up this topic at you know, a dinner or some relaxed setting with some friends, um, the female people in the group would not take this idea very, very well. Uh, even, you know, generally speaking, I, I feel like I'd get a lot of pushback. The, the immediate reaction would be, even if the people, even if they had kids, they'd be thinking about their childless co-workers or whatever, and they'd, they'd go, not every, no, there are many ways of living. You know, there, there, there's other way. What are you saying? That's disgusting. This is not 1900. So is this a common pushback? Sure, I guess so. Um, actually, I think that you described the ideological framework in the background, which is kind of late stage liberalism, and we can get into that. But the, I, I haven't heard a reply like the one that you just heard. I usually hear the stuff about climate change or... Oh, yes. Why would you yes, want to bring yeah. someone into this world? Sure. Think of the carbon footprint. The carbon footprint. Yeah, babies, it turns out, you do create some carbon. So does all life forms. Carbon-based life forms uses up carbon and, and spews out carbon dioxide. And lo and behold, right? So, so yeah, babies are a kind of life form, so they do that too. And that's a silly argument, but we, we, can, get into, we can get into that if you like. I mean, the other, the other one is why not adopt? And I think there are perfectly good reasons for adoption. I have two cousins who are adopted. Um, you know, I love them like like the rest of my family. Although I think that that doesn't solve the problem, right? That recognizing the underlying problem is, is going to require these people to actually do some basic math and see what the population pyramid looks like and understanding that, for example, if a population like Italy is cut in half in a generation or two, which it will be, um, that's not only going to drive economic chaos and the absolute need for something like mass migration or artificial intelligence, but it's also going to result in, well, fewer Italians. And if you like Italians, and I'm not Italian, but, but you know, if I were one, I'd probably want our, our, our group to continue. You know, I'd be a little concerned about that. And, you know, virtually any group outside of the West has enough self-respect left to think like, 
you know, if, if I were Somalian, like, it'd be bad if there were no more Somalians, you know, why? I don't know, because I'm part of the Somalian tribe. But if you say that in Italy, you know, I guess you're a racist and a fascist and all this, you know, I think caring about your group is perfectly reasonable. That's what any self-respecting group does, whether it's a group, an ethnic group or a religious group. Um, so yeah, there's some bizarre arguments here, but I think the one that you mentioned is, is actually the most important one, the, the, the sort of framework, which is to say, women have been brainwashed into thinking like, you know, live and let live is the ultimate sort of moral ideal. All that matters is consent and allowing people to do whatever they like. And no one really thought like that for all of human history until very recently, right? Of course we care what other people do. That's why gossip is so popular. That's why we read newspapers and just kind of look, at, look around the world. Even places we'll never go. Of course we care about it. But we're taught to say we're not supposed to care. And it's none of our business. But that's silly. No one really believes it. It's just a kind of conditioned response that they're taught to give you, I think. Do you think that there should be encouragement uh, to young younger girls or in high school or whatever, uh, you know, rather than talking about kinks endlessly <laughs> in these classes or whatever the hell they're doing? Or do you think that they should they should say, well, you know, probably, you know, for the for the good of um, of uh, humankind, it's probably uh, good that you should. Uh, you know, have children and be planning for that now and maybe, you know, thinking thinking it through, getting a plan, not having it when you're 39, not waiting, you know, and being, not thinking you've got all the time in the world and, and separating the guys and girls and saying you're on different time scales here, you know, like maybe getting to some of the weeds a bit. You, you want a you want a, a state sponsored breeding program. Is that what you want? You, you've, you've, <laughs> yeah, you've said it. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, sure. I, that, that sounds better than the existing classes on sex ed, as, as he said, right? They're getting more into kink and less into like, here's what a penis is, here's what a vagina is, or whatever, here's what children are. So yeah, I mean, I would take your alternative for sure. I actually think it's unnecessary, though. I think um, in a healthy society, you don't need to tell people to breed. Um, and so we should really be looking a step or two back further and asking why we live the way we do, why the, we have these ideals um, such that people are such extreme individualists, not just in the marketplace, like I'm going to focus on what I do well and then create a business in that area. That's fine. Individualism created modern Europe and created market economies in places like England and the, and the US and Australia. But the individualism when it comes to on, on a cultural scale, right, the idea that you can make no judgments about how other people live their lives or we can say nothing positive about what a flourishing group or human race looks like, that's crazy and we're going to have to abandon that. So I think once you get like the healthy social norms in place, which, you know, we could talk about how to do that, then yeah, yeah, okay, you have this sex ed class that teaches you about family life instead of sex toys or whatever. Sure, that that is better. But yeah, I think we should go go a little further back. I mean, one here's one simple proposal from where we are now that would probably help, and that is to just defund higher education entirely. Um, if we did that, rather than artificially subsidizing it, um, fewer people who weren't directly benefiting from it and advancing their careers, fewer people would go. And as you know, throughout the West, it's basically women who are going into higher ed now. And, and certainly when you start going up into the advanced degrees, 
social work, which provides very little value, very little training for the women. It's mostly left-wing propaganda. You know, just, just having social work programs is actually bad for our societies po- politically. It's bad for women because they spend a lot of money to get a degree that they don't learn anything from, that they're not going to get a good job after. And it also just delays reproduction and gives, puts them into debt. So when you have these, um, these kinds of arms races for educational credentials, what you do is you get a lot of women investing in those credentials. They spend a lot of money and time doing that. They become miserable because they can't get a good job afterwards, at least many of them. And so, you know, when you just think through the logic of that, simply removing some of the really basic things, like where we're, we're actually subsidizing this, right? We're paying taxes basically indirectly to sterilize women and to make them unhappy. Even that sort of simple fix would go some way probably in, in um, incentivizing family formation, meeting people younger, et cetera. Well, I think this, this uh, segues nicely into talking about IVF because a lot of women these days are putting off having family, having kids till much later and, and having to use IVF whether they, they want to or not. But m- maybe a, a nuts and bolts question first. Um, maybe you can give us an idea of, of how couples involved with IVF screen their embryos for, for various disorders. M- maybe you can explain that. So this is the topic of the book that I wrote, and I just submitted the revisions for the second edition, which will come out soon. And the idea is, um, the reason I wrote the book and the reason the topic is interesting, at least to me, is thinking from micro-level choices to macro-level patterns. And you know, we just spoke about that when it comes to things like population expansion or, or shrinkage. And you, know, you think like each individual person just choosing to have one child rather than three it's a trivial choice for each of us, but the macro pattern is the human race essentially, you know, not going extinct, but dramatically changing the way we live together, right? Which is going to affect average levels of wealth. It's going to affect culture, lots of things. Well, in the opposite direction, people making these um, choices, not of how many children have, but what traits their children will have, that's going to have a big macro level result that I think a lot of people aren't thinking through. So um, let me just really briefly mention what's on the horizon for the technology. What women who go through IVF now do is it's mostly infertile couples, occasionally gay couples. They screen their embryos for Down syndrome, for example, um, which basically just means having too few or too many uh, chromosomes. Uh, They've also been screening for a few years now for so-called monogenic disorders. So a single gene, mono creating a disease like Tay-Sachs or, you know, hemochromatosis or Huntington's, you know, these, these diseases affect different groups to different amounts, you know, Central Europeans or Jews or Africans. And that's been pretty easy to do. What do you do? You take, take the embryos that women create, you take a little biopsy of them, and you can genetically test them to see, do they have Down syndrome? Do they have Tay-Sachs, et cetera? And in many ways, actually, even Christians should welcome this and religious people should. The reason being that when women get pregnant, let's say the old fashioned way, or they do IVF, but they haven't screened the embryos in those ways, they typically do test their fetus a month in, two months in, et cetera, to see whether it's a viable, a viable fetus. And one of the things that's commonly done is, for example, Downs testing. Now, you might say, well, they shouldn't abort if they have a Downs uh, diagnosis. Some people do believe that. But when you actually look at what most women do, most do abort, actually. 
And my view is it's morally a lot less problematic to screen out embryos before you implant an embryo than it is to implant an embryo and then abort it, you know, two months later, if you have a diagnosis you don't like. So anyway, that's the, that's the basic technology that's been available. It's, that's not very much, actually. That's just changing things around the margins. But the big thing that's available now is, and it will get very powerful very quickly here, is that you can do a deeper genetic sequence of these, these embryos. And there are companies coming online, one of which already exists, that will basically give you predictors for what traits these embryos will have if they become adults. So how prone will they be to developing schizophrenia, breast cancer, uh, prostate cancer, a whole variety of different traits. And the big one that everyone's waiting for and is coming soon is IQ, as well as personality traits. IQ is, or intelligence is about no, 70, maybe as high as 80% heritable by adulthood which means, you know, pretty heavily influenced by genes. Personality traits are about 50% heritable. And different diseases have different degrees of heritability, of course. But once you have that on the table, you can get genetic selection kind of amped up, you know, and you're, you're moving from, I don't know, your, your little Hyundai into something like a turbocharged uh, Porsche or something like that. Um, and to push that analogy further, just one more quick thought on this before we talk about it. Um, moving from like a turbocharged Porsche to, let's say, a Tesla or, or something like that, a qualitatively different machine that's even faster, has more control and has more torque. What's going to come online quickly, and this actually will, I think, raise religious questions in the ways that the last technology I mentioned won't, is something called in vitro gametogenesis. And we're probably three to five years away from it. And that involved taking an adult cell. It could be skin bone, blood, I think blood's the easiest to do. And then taking those cells, turning them into what's called a pluripotent stem cell, which is basically the kind of cells that, a, that an embryo has. It, it's the kind of cell that can become any other kind of cell. You're basically reverse aging any adult cell, turning it into what it used to be, let's say in my case, 46 years ago. And once you have that, you can turn that into a sperm or egg cell. So you can imagine there are two major consequences to this. And this is why, like, if we don't start thinking about it this year, we should, we'll definitely be thinking a lot about it in five years um, when this comes out. Basically, two consequences immediately follow. One is women won't have to do IVF anymore. They won't have to go through this hormonal process where they get injections and so on, and then they get a few eggs a few months later, right? And that's a little bit of a painful process, pretty annoying, expensive, time-consuming. Instead, women are going to be able to draw a vial of blood and turn that into 10,000 eggs or 10 million eggs instead of you know, 5 or 10 eggs or something like that. The second consequence is that embryo selection, the, the process I just described where you test for a really simple disorder like Downs or Tay-Sachs, and then you get into these more complex ones. Well, even the complex ones like intelligence or personality traits or height, which involve hundreds or thousands of genetic variants interacting, you still have a pretty constrained set of options if you just have five or 10 embryos. But now imagine you have a thousand embryos from which to select. You get tremendous genetic diversity such that two short people could have a tall daughter or two relatively dim people 
are probably going to have an outlier that's really, really bright, actually. Right. And so that's going to be a technology that at least when it's you know available to the masses, maybe that'll take 20 years. I don't know. But when that does happen, it's going to have the power to change humanity very rapidly. So maybe we can talk about that. That process of we're just screening the embryos at this stage. We're not actually going in and, and, and changing the DNA of those embryos, are we? No. Is, is that something that's on the horizon where you might be able to say, I don't know, almost, uh, you know, almost select all the different types of, of, of characteristics of, of your child, or, you know, almost like, like shopping for mod- modular furniture or something? Yeah, um, I think that's, you know, sometime in the future, it's really hard to make predictions about these things because you get these sudden leaps, like when chat GPT came out, you know, what, a year ago or whatever. Well, sur- suddenly we're already on like GPT four or five or six. It's just like, it's speeding up and it's, it's suddenly raised this question of artificial intelligence. And, and some people are worried, like the average person actually still doesn't even know what this is. Like we need to have a discussion about it before we advance into, you know, potentially AGI, artificial general intelligence. By then it's too late, right? It'll already be able to outthink us. Similarly here, I think this is going to happen. Um, you know, we need to not necessarily slow down the technology because I think it is, it is already proceeding fairly slowly compared to AI. But I think what's going to happen here is um, in the next few years, it's going to speed up a little bit and that's going to bring about this conversation. More people are going to talk about it be informed about it, et cetera. And I think that's going to take place before gene editing becomes viable. And the reason is gene editing is extremely inefficient right now. There are lots of so-called off-target mutations when you use CRISPR, for example. Um, And even if CRISPR were to work perfectly, that's the gene editing tool that everyone sort of uses right now in biology. It It is widely used actually in plant biology and animal biology already. So it works in some sense. It's just not safe to use on embryos because of the mutations it can produce. But there's actually better news too. Not only is that not viable or ready for human use yet, we actually wouldn't want to use it even if it were perfectly safe yet. And the reason is most traits that we care about are not monogenic. They're not caused by one simple genetic variant. They're polygenic. They're caused by hundreds or in many cases, even tens of thousands of genetic variants. And here, what we're talking about, when I say genetic variant, the word gene is a highly ambiguous term. It's really just a a, a cluster of A's, G's, C's, and T's that we find it useful to say that cluster is a gene because it produces a protein or because it regulates a protein. When I talk about genetic variants, it's one single base pair typically, or a small number of base pairs. It's really smaller than a gene. And, you know, you have billions of these on your chromosomes. And so... You know, right now, you might be able to safely, possibly, you know, edit one base pair with CRISPR. Even there, there's some risks. But the problem is we don't know what a lot of these, what most of these base pairs actually do in isolation to safely edit the human genome. In other words, even if we could use CRISPR in a perfectly safe way, it would still be unsafe as a whole because you know, most of the traits we care about involve thousands of these tiny variants, and we don't know what they all do yet. So if you were to randomly, I don't know, edit like 37 of them, God only knows what you would get in response, it would be extremely, extremely dangerous. So but there have been, well, I'll ask the question, have there been dramatic effects with the technology we have 
right now in in IVF, for instance. So you mentioned Down syndrome. So so what are the effects of 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 simple selection and just the technology, little tweaks over you know 10, 20, 20, 30 years or whatever so far, or something like that. Well, I guess you mean for for example, disease prevalence. So there are fewer people born with Downs now, and there are almost no children at all in the Western world, in the wealthy world, with Tay Sachs because that's mostly an Ashkenazi Jewish disease, although there are some other groups, other people can get it. But it was mainly concentrated in that population. So what did they do? They all test for it. And they make sure that, you know, they don't either implant an embryo or marry someone with the relevant variant. Um, You know, it's a recessive disease. So basically, you know, they only marry people who are compatible with them genetically. And then they will often test, you know, before they have a child anyway. So you you get fewer people with Downs, fewer people with Tay-Sachs. And I assume that's the only effect we've really had from IVF, although we can talk about the social effects. I mean, there are social effects, which is more people have kids now than would have had kids. I think on the whole, that's a good thing because I think feminism has, especially, you know, the more extreme varieties of feminism, the recent ones have convinced a lot of women to do things that later in life they regret. And luckily, because of IVF, many women in their late 30s were able to conceive, or even 40s, um, who otherwise wouldn't have. I think so far, that's mostly a positive thing, although you could say there are some negatives, which is it also allows women to delay reproduction longer, and maybe that makes them uh, more likely to have some issues with their kids if they're not genetically testing them. So I guess it's a double-edged sword. Is that what you had in mind, or what were you thinking about? Yeah, well, I'm just interested because you, you know all the all the uh, the gene editing stuff you talk about. Could we not take the the fact that when the option is is given to parents to uh, currently to do uh, something that's better for their children and better for their life, happier, healthier, whatever, they take it. So therefore, some of the more dramatic things you're talking about, as soon as they're on the table, won't people just go? Yes, I, I want my kid to be 10, uh, 10 points more intelligent or what uh, intelligent or whatever. Yep, um, I think large numbers will. I think there will be you know the usual. Some will have religious objections and others and and sincere religious objections, not just you know empty virtue signaling. And you know one one issue, one moral issue that people worry about. I worry a little less about it, but I worry too is is increasing genetic inequalities and. That's fairly obviously going to be a consequence of this. We already have genetic inequality and we already have more than we used to in the West because of female education. Um, As mentioned, because people, more women are being more educated. That doesn't mean they're smarter necessarily, but the really smart women, of course, while they are smarter by definition, they're becoming doctors and lawyers and and they wouldn't have done that a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. And so what you're getting is more and more assortative mating where a smart woman marries a smart man and they have smarter than average kids, right? And the same goes for the opposite. Whereas probably even 100, 200 years ago, not that men didn't care about female intelligence. Um, Of course, we always cared about things like that. Is she clever? But you're going to marry more for beauty. Why? Because that's the superficial trait you can see. And you maybe you marry based on the family lineage too a little bit. But basically, men own the property, men make the money. And so, you know, you, you, you basically look for a cute young woman, right, who doesn't have any obvious diseases in her family. But now it's, it's very different, right? Women accumulate resources and they're looking like we're looking. 
And so you're getting more genetic inequality already. And this is going to accelerate it, especially in the short run, because obviously the rich are going to be able to afford this first. That'll create probably a little bit more of a chasm in the short run. But in the long run, I think the chasm actually shrinks in some ways between, let's say, the richly genetically endowed and the poorly genetically endowed who have access to this technology and who don't reject it for, let's say, religious reasons. The religious objectors, I actually do really worry about their kids. You know, I'm talking 100 years out, um, not, not 10 years out. Why? Because after even a few generations of people using this sort of thing, you're going to get some pretty big gaps. And, and I'm not even talking about gene editing yet, right? I mean, that throws a whole bunch of other issues onto the table. You'll probably get even bigger gaps um, pretty rapidly. Um, but yeah, so I think one consequence of this is you'll get increasing inequalities in, in some ways. But actually, in the long run, the people who are choosing to opt into the system and not opt out, so to speak, they'll actually get more genetic parity. Because right now, the sort of middle class, they have this, you know, you endow... You have this genetic endowment. The, the, the smartest people are just smarter than you, and there's not much you can do about it. But once everyone has access to this genetic technology, and if you have enough embryos, for example, you can easily select one. You know, A couple of normal people are going to have some children that are a lot smarter than the smartest existing people. And so what you're going to get is possibly some arms races, but they're almost fairer arms races than they are now. Right now, if you're not that bright, there's just not much you can do about it um, or do for your kids. It's just sort of genetic luck. Well, we have some questions on the, the, the class issue around this, but perhaps before we leave intelligence, I think, you know, intelligence, talking about it makes some people pretty uncomfortable. So if we take a few steps back, maybe you could outline what, what actually is intelligence and, and how do we measure it? You know, this isn't an area in which I got a PhD, so I'm not an expert, but I've certainly read plenty on the topic and I've written a bit on it. Um, yeah, so generally, intelligence involves things like the ability to remember disparate facts, the ability to creatively solve problems. Often there's a dimension of speed too, although I don't think that's essential. Like people who can solve problems quicker, they tend to be a bit brighter than others. We even have words for that, like, you know, quick, someone who is bright is quick. Uh, in fact, in Spanish, the word listo, it, it's like ready, quick. It means also bright. Um, so there, there, there's, there's this sort of term. That, so we do understand that. We do understand, you know, smarter people like smarter dogs or smarter animals of various kinds, dolphins, whales. You know, we tend to say they're bright when, when they can remember things when they can put together disparate facts to sort of tell an overall story or come up with an overall theory or picture of, of how the world works. Um, and so, yeah, I think we have an intuitive sense, but yeah, it involves something like that. It involves memory, creative problem solving, et cetera. And you can get into details, but that gives you an, a sort of basic view. And the reality is everyone understands what intelligence is intuitively. Like I said, with babies or dogs and cats, I mean, we say like, that dog is smarter than the other one or certain breeds are smarter than other breeds. And that's true. They, they are right. That that's the, the world we live in. And so we all kind of understand it, but then when we get to humans, people get squeamish. And this is mostly because I think there are a few reasons. One is of course, there's not a lot we can do about it. I mean, education can budget. It can make you a little smarter or you know less smart if you're deprived, no doubt about that. 
but it can't really fundamentally alter your capacities. You can't take someone who's dim and turn them into a genius, you know, who's going to win a Nobel Prize by just, you know, throwing some books in their lap or, you know, giving them a ticket to Yale. If you're dim, you're not going to make it through Yale University, right? As a physics major. Maybe you make it through as a women's studies major. Okay, that was a cheap shot. But, <laughs> cheap. No, you, <laughs> That's good. You won't, even make it, you won't even make it through as a women's studies major if you're really dim, right? It's simply not going to happen. And it's not your fault. It's because you don't have the capacity to process that much information and, and synthesize it and you know, write the relevant papers and cite the sources and so on. So anyway, um, yeah, we all understand what it is. I think part, part of the resistance is since you can't change it in a really deep and fundamental way, you don't want to blame people for it, you know, in the same way you don't want to blame short people for being short or people who are not attractive. They have a disfigured face. What do you do? Laugh at them? I mean, that that's cruel, right? So I think that's one reason we, we, we don't want to face up to it. Um, it's highly heritable. We can't change it much. And so we don't want to like mock people for it. Another reason is um, there are going to be ethnic differences in intelligence. And, you know, I, I'm on record as saying that and getting hard canceled for it. Um, I think it's obviously true. In fact, it's measurably true. The only question among intelligence researchers is what's the proportion of genes versus environment that produces those outcomes. But those outcomes make people uncomfortable. Um, why? Well, I actually don't think they intrinsically do that to people. But in kind of left liberal societies like the one you live in, the one I live in, People want to believe that we all have the same basic capacities and that it's only oppression that or discrimination, unjust discrimination that can explain disparities. I think that's that's false. But you can see why people would believe that. They've internalized these kind of liberal norms and they've they've sort of changed what began as this theory that we should all be treated equally under the law. We should all be given if not equal opportunity, which is impossible to fully achieve, we should move in that direction to the view that, well, look, we can't measure any of those things. So what we're going to do is say, if there's inequality of outcome, then basically we live in an evil, unjust society. And so given that we have this kind of overall set of social norms in place in, in the West, you know, people have basically chosen to, instead of acknowledge genetic reality that individuals and groups almost certainly differ and differ for genetic reasons, they've just chosen to deny everything. Genetics don't matter. Um, there's no such thing as race or sex or IQ tests. Those, are, those aren't real either. So that's been the kind of spasmodic response. And even though in academia right now and in journalism, that's clearly the predominant view. You get canceled for denying that view. Everyone kind of knows it's fake. And my suspicion is that, you know, reasonably inquisitive people within a decade or two are going to openly mock that view, even if that's the official ideology still of, let's say, the American Academy or, or, or journalists in Australia. I don't know. That might still be the official view, but Already, most people are starting to think, yeah, that's that's probably fake. That's probably not correct. Mm. Well, if this if this designer baby world becomes reality, surely it'll be the people with considerable financial resources that'll be able to afford to create kids with super IQs and other desirable traits, which you've already touched on in this interview. Uh, but you know, will it create sort of a two-class world with those who are genetically enhanced on one side and, and, and those who are left to fate on the other? You know, I guess 
I guess my, my, my overall question is, is, is how do we manage this, this, this inequality? I think instead of two class, it's going to create thousands and thousands of classes. In fact, it's not going to really be a class-based society at all because it can't be. There's going to be more genetic diversity in every possible direction, I think. And that includes just like, if you think of a bell curve for any trait, whether it's height or it could be IQ, but it could, could be anything, how curly your hair is, you know, whatever. You know, I think people are going to have different preferences and select in different directions. So super athletes, they already marry each other, right? A lot of Olympians, you know, there'll be an Olympic swimmer marrying an Olympic runner and and uh, they have Olymp- Olympiad kids. N- not always, of course, because there's regression to the mean. You have two outliers. They are likely to pr- produce outlier children, but actually, in, in many cases, not as much of an outlier as they are. They tend to regress to the mean. But what genetic selection will be able to do is prevent regression to the mean and possibly push you outwards further and further away from the mean. But it's not going to be in one or two directions, but in a thousand. And so what you're going to get is just more genetic diversity um, still, it will increase inequality, as, as you suggested. And my view is this is like one of those, this is why it's an interesting problem. You might say, okay, we should stop this inequality then. Okay, well, there's two ways to do that. One is through massive government coercion, you know, Nazi-style eugenics programs where you just force everyone to breed. Um, the other is through forcing nobody to be able to use the technology or attempting to do that. And as I've argued before, um, that's actually going to succeed in making the problem worse, not better, in my view. Why? Because where there's demand for a good like this, you want your kids, at least some people want their kids to have these advantages. There will be markets to which people can go to access this information. And I'm not even talking about, again, CRISPR. I'm just talking about getting embryo reports um, or doing in vitro gametogenesis, which is going to again, be like a turbo-powered engine or an electric car where it speeds up that process. There's going to be some ways for people to do this in the same way they can access illegal drugs or kidneys on the kidney market. They might even go all the way to Colombia or Mexico or India to do it. And in that world, what you're going to get is the rich and well-connected are going to be able to have these advantages. And the rest of us who can't afford to bribe the right politicians or, or leave the country to do this will actually be left left behind. If anything, the, the sort of two-tier society is more likely to happen if you make this technology illegal because it's going to sort of shrink the number of people who have access to it, but ensure that only that small and well-connected group does actually do it, and then the rest don't. Another scenario is um, some countries, it's not individuals within countries, but entire countries will not only permit it, but encourage it while other countries make it illegal. In fact, I think this is basically inevitable. This is what will happen in the next 20 years. And the consequences will be profound. Here's an example. Um, China has recently announced that they will make in vitro fertilization, IVF, um, complementary that is free of charge for all women. Why? They're trying to solve the problem we, we started with, the birth rate problem. They want to make it easier for especially older women to have children or for younger women to freeze their eggs and then use IVF later, um, either with a partner, which they hope they'll get, or with you know maybe a sperm donor or something if they don't find a partner in time. Well, if China's doing this already and they don't have the kind of norms we do in the West against you know eugenics or genetic enhancement, whatever word you want to call it, you know, if you ask a Chinese person or an Indian, 
like, would you select in favor of intelligence? They're just confused by your question. Well, of course, why wouldn't you? Are you stupid? Are you crazy? Like, it's actually confusing to them why they wouldn't do it um, or select for traits that they want. Um, that might include skin color. It might include athleticism. And so in a world like that, which is, I think, the world we will live in, where some countries actively encourage it and others ban it, yeah, you're going to get more inequalities and you're going to get a kind of chaos of social norms whereby either people are going to want to move countries to use it or not use it or or countries that initially ban it are going to play catch up and they're going to at least permit it, if not subsidize it. So I think we are indeed coming to, as you might call it, a brave new world, but it's not the boring brave new world that you see in Aldous Huxley's novel with a two-tier society. I find that a pretty a pretty uncreative vision of the future, actually. The future is much richer and much scarier, <laughs> mm. both. So, Well, I want to talk about eugenics in a second, but, but first, I'm interested in this idea. I mean, the people who, uh, I don't want to say uh, the woke people, so let's make it a little bit more evergreen, people who are uh, radical leftists who are, uh, go on endlessly about social justice. Uh, how do, do you think they will behave when given these options of, of you know, um, that we've been talking about? Yeah, good question. Um, I'll be interested in what you think too. Um, yeah, I just wrote something, uh, this little magazine, Psychology Today, invited me to write a little series on this reproductive technology. And the last one I wrote a few weeks ago is called something like... Um, Elites are going to publicly condemn what they privately do. I mean, they already do that in various realms, but um, in this realm especially. Um, you know, I was a university professor for many years here in the U.S., and you know, intellectuals and in universities are obsessed with intelligence, right? They care a lot about their scores and their children going to the right schools, and they you know signal about it endlessly. So they know perfectly well what intelligence is. They care probably more about it than I do, frankly. Um, I care more about virtue than intelligence, but a lot of these academics and elites, they care a lot about it, but they also understand that they're expected to publicly pay allegiance to what you just called the woke view, which is basically blank slateism. The idea that, yeah, genetics don't play any role in intelligence, certainly between groups and probably not even between individuals, uh, you know, even personality traits like why are men more violent than women. It's because they've been socialized into this. It's not testosterone. Or, you know, maybe testosterone enables it a little bit, but it's not really that. It's this other stuff. You know, that's the official narrative of the media class and the university classes. Sadly, it all comes from the United States and it infects people like you, your country and England and, and so on. And it doesn't matter that that's a false view. It is the official view of the elites. And if you want to make it into the elite classes, you'd better pay allegiance to that view publicly. Nevertheless, again, these people are obsessed with their kids succeeding. Um, we know like there was this celebrity scandal a decade ago where Hollywood celebrities were paying um, basically imposters to take the SAT test for their children. Uh, Felicity Huffman. Yeah, she, that's she, right. went, she went to the big house for this, I believe. Did she? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they all do stuff like this, as you know, and they'll do anything to give their kid just the, the most mild advantage. Now imagine you give them the ultimate advantage, which is, 
you know, you don't even have to tell them to study hard. You give them the ability to just learn quickly with like this kind of genetic endowment. Better believe a lot of them are going to use it. So um, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch what happens. A, they're going to, as, as mentioned, initially publicly condemn what they privately what they privately do. But B, it's going to force, in my view, an increasing amount of cognitive dissonance between what they maybe actually even do believe, right? Because the quickest way to lie to other people is to lie to yourself first, right? A lot of a lot of these Hollywood celebrities and university professors, I don't know what's worse. Are they lying or have they are they so delusional that it's not even a lie? The worst kind of lie is the kind that you tell yourself first and, and actually train yourself into believing. So maybe a lot of them do believe, you know, a lot of this kind of wokeness. You know, men are only more violent than women because of toxic masculinity, and they're taught that as opposed to whatever. They have a different kind of nature than women. Maybe they actually believe it. Whatever the case is, there's going to be increasing cognitive dissonance between what they publicly actually do believe and say, or or at least say whether they believe it or not. And that's because if a lot of these traits that we care about are highly heritable and are easily influenced by by genetic selection, again, you know, people are going to go, well, I'm going to do what's best for my kid. And if if it turns out like, you know, if I have a psychopath, which is just defined as someone who lacks empathy, you can't you can't teach that. Right. Psychopaths are basically people who end up in prison in modern society. If I can avoid that through genetic selection rather than a false view that if you're just nice to psychopaths, they're going to be nice back. I'm going to quickly learn. It doesn't matter how bright I am. I'm going to look at that evidence and go, hell no, I don't want to have a psychopathic child or hell yes. If I can select in favor of health, athleticism, conscientiousness, and intelligence, I'm probably going to do it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to select for extreme outliers. You know, that might be a little dangerous. I, I think it probably is for a lot of traits. But I think more and more, even celebrities who officially endorse this blank slate view of human nature, at least publicly endorse it, I think there's just going to be this increasing disconnect between that message and what people privately do. And eventually, the way social norms work, and most people just get their beliefs from social norms, from what influential people say, then they just follow it, right? The way social norms work typically is, you know, people believe them. Most people, you know, have to converge on a set of norms. They sort of slowly start to, you know, shake up a little bit because there's something at the foundations that's shaking them. And then you get what's called a preference cascade where the social norms change extremely quickly. They just flip like almost overnight. And a, a simple example, whether you like it or not, is just like, gay marriage, right? Is it socially acceptable to oppose gay marriage? Well, even 10 years ago, it was not only acceptable, it was required. Barack Obama, Obama, yes. Obama famously, right? Yeah. Ran on the message that, you know, he would absolutely oppose gay marriage. Now, even in a Republican primary, you have to say that you're in favor of gay marriage and not even opposed to it. So, I'm just using that as a neutral example. You know, you could come up with a thousand others, but that's how social norms actually work. And that's that's a good example because it's so trivial. It's not even an issue a lot of people spend their lives worrying about, right? Like, I just, I don't think about gay marriage. <laughs> Why would I, right? I have better things to do. Now, imagine what happens with norms that are this consequential, where it involves like how you have children and what kind of children you have. 
when, when the cracks start to form in that worldview, the, the cognitive dissonance grows. I think the, in, the, the preference cascade is going to be dramatic. And just to cap the discussion off, it's not going to just change how people choose to have children. I think it's going to destroy the entire woke narrative. So one of, one of the, I'll just put it on the table, the cards on the table. One of my hopes for this technology is that it actually, you know, I'm ambivalently in favor of it. I actually think there are going to be lots of problems with it. And I've expressed some of them here. But one of the positive sides I see is that it will eventually utterly destroy the woke worldview because it's simply impossible in a world of genetic selection and in a world of genetic or genomic medicine where the regime of medicine that you have partly is going to depend on you're going to genetically sequence yourself, figure out what you're predisposed toward getting, and then you're going to adjust you know, your diet, what kinds of medications you might take. And that, that's going to be a good thing, I think, as long as you get genetic privacy. But this worldview is going to basically just call out the woke worldview for what it is, which is horseshit. It's basically late stage liberalism attempting to uphold this, this view that only discrimination, only prejudice, only, only um, imperialism, these kinds of things explain the disparities that we see around us. Um, if you're, you know, if you understand genetics, if you've seen how twin studies turn out and things like that, you already know this world, this worldview is false, but most people don't. And so I think we're, we're in for a, a giant social awakening when it comes to the kind of genomics revolution. While we're in, while we're here, there's you know there's been uh, this this term eugenics gets used almost always as a well always as a pejorative. I've never heard it. I never heard anyone say uh, here's uh, here's Jonathan Anomaly. He's a eugenicist. You know, no one's not that anyone has made that claim. I'm just saying no <laughs> one's ever said it like that. Uh, so you know, what are we talking about when we say eugenics? How is it used? And and are we kind of already engaging in it a little bit? And what do you, what do you think? So it's a term coined by uh, Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, who also invented, well, the idea for twin studies and behavioral genetics. He invented psychometrics, a lot of concepts and statistics, like the concept of correlation, even the phrase nature and nurture. So Galton, you know, who is a kind of polymath, you know, he invented this, this term eugenics, and it just comes from the term you and, and gen, which means something like good birth or good origin or something. And he was interested in studying traits that we all think are, for the most part, good. I mean, intelligence is what makes us different than chimpanzees, for example, right? Um, the word intelligence doesn't necessarily mean good, but generally humans understand like intelligence is what makes us able to come up with, I don't know, art and science and tell funny jokes. Chimpanzees aren't very funny, you know, at parties. Why? Because they're just not that bright. Um, you know, it's pretty obvious. So in that sense, you know, once you understand that things like intelligence or even kindness, uh, a kind of disposition to treat people generously, maybe that's not as inheritable inherit as intelligence, but it is highly heritable actually, right? Once you understand these things are influenced by genes, it's natural enough to say, well, it's better if these traits that we like tend to proliferate and better if traits like psychopathy which is a kind of parasitic strategy in the human population, right? Tend to diminish. Um, that's good, right? And so Galton thought, you know, 
we should want eugenic patterns of reproduction. And it was fairly obvious at the time, everyone agreed with that, including Darwin, quite explicitly. It's better if like smart, generous, healthy people have children and, and if the opposite don't. And then there's only a question of like, okay, so who should be in charge of that? Should it be people doing it voluntarily or should it be the state forcing you into like, you know, into marrying a specific person or sterilizing you, you know, if, if you exhibit bad qualities? Very clear from the beginning, Darwin and Galton were explicit that the state should not, you know, engage in the kind of massive coercion and force people to couple up or, you know, murder or sterilize their children. You know, that only happened, well, a little bit in the United States and, and a lot in Nazi Germany. So what we have is like this term and the ideas associated with it being corrupted basically by the Nazis. Um, I think that, you know, basically we should reject this, this idea that anything the Nazis did was bad. I mean, Hitler was a vegetarian, as you know, and, you know, one of the few good laws that Hitler passed was animal welfare laws. He was actually, you know, I, I guess he was a complex person. So he really didn't like the idea of people torturing animals. You know, he didn't mind for Jews, apparently. But, you know, does that mean we should... Um, you know, repeal our animal welfare laws or, you know, put vegetarians in the gas chambers because Hitler revered vegetarianism? Obviously not. So, you know, similarly, Hitler euthanized a lot of Germans. Forget the Jews. He involuntarily murdered many Germans, Germans that he deemed useless eaters. These were either mentally handicapped people, even gays. You know, he just murdered them. And, you know, we might say, okay, then... Um, euthanasia is bad because Hitler supported euthanasia. Well, you know, you shouldn't be able to make arguments like that. I mean, there, there are different versions of euthanasia. There's voluntary euthanasia where, you know, people have been doing this for millions of years. Like sometimes if you have, you know, you're at the end of your life. And I mean, really toward the end, forget about the marginal cases. It's been understood for a long time that people will kind of step outside of the house and you know, sometimes people do it in gruesome ways, but other times people starve themselves. The Japanese, for example, would be expected sometimes to voluntarily go to a mountain and just sit there and starve themselves to death when it was a time in which maybe there was a famine. And it was either like grandpa goes and, you know, commits euthanasia against himself or the whole family starves, right? I've seen a movie that's based around that. I think it's called, the, was it The Ballad of Narayama? And it's about, it's a really, it's a total bummer. It's like this small village and like there's a whole ritual where you've got to like, you know, take your your elderly you know, parent or whatever up to the mountain and that's just where it ends on the mountain. Yeah, it's kind of um, awful. But yeah, I mean, human history has been a pretty grim history, right? But yeah, I mean, this idea that, okay, Hitler was for involuntary euthanasia. Let's just kill people who are disabled. Therefore, we should all be against all forms of euthanasia. It's just silly. I mean, whether you're against euthanasia or for it, you know, whatever. I mean, there are substantive disagreements about the voluntary version. Same thing goes for eugenics, in my view. And the reality is, well after World War II, many famous people, including Crick and Watson, who you know, co-discovered the structure of DNA, Ernst Mayer, Theo Dobjansky. These are people from the far left to the far right. Herman Muller, they openly advocated eugenics. Uh, Aldous Huxley's brother, Julian Huxley, openly advocated eugenics. He said, 
the purpose of our institutions should be to encourage eugenics. What did they mean by that? It's very clear in all of those cases, although there might have been a few other cases, they did not mean involuntarily euthanizing or sterilizing people. They meant we should figure out how the laws of heredity work and try to avoid extreme disease and probably promote traits like intelligence and that sort of thing. But we should do it voluntarily. So I really, it really bothers me um, that this term has been co-opted completely. I think it's mainly... It's not so much right after World War II that it gets a negative connotation. It doesn't. It's really in the last five to 10 years that it especially has taken on that connotation. And I don't really care about terms. What I do care about is I don't like submitting to what the thought police want us to do when they try to control our language. So I was asked just to take an example to finish this thought off. I was invited to write a defense of eugenics about seven years ago. And, um, and then there was supposed to be a, like a for and against argument, right? Someone opposing it, I give the for, someone gives the against. And this was part of a, an entire series where it was like for and against, you know, animal rights or vegetarianism, you know, a bunch of applied ethics issues, and abortion, etc. And I gave the argument for, and, you know, I publish it because this is normal in philosophy, academic philosophy. You take a position, someone opposes it. And it was completely normal in philosophy, even 10 years ago, to endorse things like liberal eugenics, right? Which just means individuals having control over their reproductive, reproductive choices. But really, it was about five to six years ago, for example, when my paper was published, it was actually some crazy cat lady in Australia who started a petition against me. She tried to get me fired from my job. And I'll give you a sense of how crazy this woman is. I, I don't even need to describe her absurd views. She was head of the Critical Whiteness Studies Association of Australia. Of course she was. Of course she was. <laughs> and if you know what critical whiteness studies is, it's not like um, Chinese studies or Arab studies or Jewish studies where, you know, it's a kind of discipline where you study, let's say, the history of the Arabs and the, the economy of Arab countries. Oh, no, no. Whiteness studies just means white people are terrible and let's study the ways in which they are terrible. So my critic from the Critical Whiteness Studies Program of Australia started a global petition to try to get me fired. And normally you would just laugh her out of the room. I mean, this is a, a thoroughly unremarkable, unaccomplished, degenerate woman. But, you know, Twitter working the way that it works and the great awakening, the, the sort of woke revolution coming into full form in 2018, you know, she succeeded in really getting me in quite a bit of trouble, um, not by in any way refuting a single thing I said. She didn't challenge a single thing that I argued in that paper. She just screenshotted the paper called Defending Eugenics, which I was asked to write, and then tried to get me fired and almost succeeded. So... Anyway, so this is why I even care about these linguistic things, not just about my case, but, you know, I think we should worry about the euphemism treadmill. I was just arguing with Richard Hanania today. He wrote a substack on this. I was going to talk to you about this. He, he, he's, I read that this morning and I was like, oh, I wonder if Jonathan's going to talk about this. So what yeah. do you think? Well, I, I know him personally. I know him well. And we, we agree on actually all of everything related to this issue. The, the only thing that he was arguing in that is 
we basically shouldn't use the label eugenics anymore. And frankly, I just don't care. I'm, I'm sort of bored of the conversation. But of course, I shot back at him and sort of said a few things. One is it's a euphemism treadmill. As soon as you take another term, so for example, I've advocated certain forms of genetic enhancement, as we now call it, right? And that's a mainstream term in philosophy. Well, what do they do to us when we advocate genetic enhancement? They call us eugenicists. And it's like, okay, they're, they're just trying to force you to accept their worldview. And you have to realize at some point, they're not interested in debate. They want to control your thoughts through language. And the more you capitulate to that, the worse off we're going to be. So this is really about substance, not labels. And I actually think there's, there's a moral reason to resist that. Namely, that when those of us who are making bold arguments, like academic arguments, come out and do something like I did five years ago or someone else, I mean, Hanania, he makes bold arguments all the time. He basically said academia is ruined because of women's tears, right? We're all subject to the social norms of, of women. Now. That's a pretty bold argument to make, right? Now, if I just redefine the word tear and woman, and you know, we've seen attempts to do exactly that. Well, well, I can now suddenly say, well, I won the argument, but hold on, right? Before we redefine what a woman is, why don't we just, why don't we agree to debate the substance rather than the label? And so I'm starting to, on the one hand, I want to abandon the word eugenics too, because it's like, just, it just gets you this like flack for no reason. On the other hand, I want to dig my heels in and say, F you, like I'm a eugenicist, you know, in the sense of like, do I think like people should sometimes select for healthy children and pay attention to the genes involved? Yes, I do. If that makes me a eugenicist, F off. Like, I don't, you know, I don't really care what you're going to call me. Well, we're, we're in very tricky waters here. I feel like I'm surrounded by trip wires and I think I may, <laughs> I may activate one of those wires now. But yeah. you, you mentioned the term sterilization and currently yeah. there are situations where we are sterilizing children based on gender identity. And, yeah. um, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that, whether that sort of, uh, you know, could be couched in, in a eugenic sort of term. But, you know, I, I feel like, you know, there are cultures out there that don't look favorably on homosexuality. And, you know, do you think there's a danger that homosexuality will be genetically eradicated? And some people have argued that, you know, the sterilization of transgender kids who may grow up just to be homosexual, yeah. that, that, or, or, or flipping their gender it is a form of, you know, conversion therapy. So, you know, I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? And, and, and am I canceled? Am I canceled now? <laughs> yes. I hear my canceling. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually a great point. I hadn't thought about that before. So I, I like the framing. Um, I suppose so. I mean, look, I've, I've asked a couple of friends of mine who know more than I do about the topic, how heritable homosexuality is. So it is partly genetic. It looks like at least for men, I think, a lot less is known about women. Women's sexuality is more flexible. It does look more like, you know, a small percentage of the population of the male population, at least, is for, for mostly but not entirely genetic reasons, uh, homosexual. There, there are weird cases. I mean, two of the best students I ever had at Duke, um, in, in all the years I've taught, two of the very best are an interesting case where they're identical twins. One is gay and one is not, and they're men. And I actually dated a girl once who also identical twins. So this is actually a girl where her sister only dates women and she only dates men. Now, 
I think she's, she's even said she's a little more flexible and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so there are these weird outlier cases. It can't be clearly 100% heritable because they're identical twins who do go in different directions. However, it seems to be mostly an interaction of genes plus hormones in the womb, which is why, for example, um, apparently later children, like third or fourth or fifth children, tend to, on average, uh, be more likely to be gay than the firstborn or the secondborn. So there seems to be a weird combination of genetics and um, yeah, hormones in the womb. Plus, clearly, the environment matters a little bit because people can be suggestible, obviously. You so there's about, no you way know, some of these Hollywood types with their four trans and non-binary and whatever kids and yeah. you're like, wow, that is you that is a, a huge hit rate. Right. Yeah. So it's clear, like, especially with the trans stuff, I mean, that's that's a social contagion. I think there are very few people who would even think in those terms even 50 years ago, anywhere in the world, let alone so many people. But I think with like gay men, it, it's it's correct to say like there are some people who are born gay or for the most part born gay with that disposition. I think that's probably true. And would this eradicate some of them? I think the answer is yes. Is that bad? I don't know. Um, it's an interesting question. Actually, Peter Singer, you know, famous Australian philosopher, who, you know, you know, controversial in some ways, but a very sincere guy. You know, he never says what he doesn't believe. And so I like that about him. He really doesn't virtue signal. Um, I disagree with him on so many issues, but I can always count on him to, to, to take a position that's sincere and express it clearly. I wrote a paper with him called Can Eugenics Be Defended some years ago? And it's partly because we get called eugenicists whether we like it or not. So we're like, well, depends what you mean by it, et cetera. But he made the point in this paper, actually, that, um, you know, you could say something like deaf people, people who are born deaf, are going to be um, genocided by genetic technology. And he sort of said, well, okay, what do we mean by genocide? It's like, okay, if we mean like, you know, murdering large numbers of people, then that's both bad and not going to happen. But if we mean by genocide, there is like a technical definition. In fact, the, the literal one, if you look it up, just means reducing a population by a certain amount. Um, and he was giving an analogy between that and eugenics because you can use these words in these different ways, you know, so will gays be genocided by genetic technology? In some sense, like the answer is probably yes, although it's maybe trivial. In another sense, like obviously the answer is no, they're not going to be murdered or whatever. So, so yeah, I think the substantive issue is an interesting one. Their numbers probably will be reduced. Is that bad? I don't really think so because if people are born with a certain disposition, they just happen to like women instead of men. Is that a worse world? Like, I don't think so. Well, Jonathan, it feels like we've only just scratched the surface. I think we're going to have to get you to come back at some point to go a little deeper. And you, you did uh, debut before uh, the, the, the program some rather exciting news, which I won't talk about, but something very exciting I think is coming up for Jonathan in the future, which you'll come back to talk to us about. Uh, but I wanted to give you the final word on uh, uh, to finish this off today. We talked about a lot of different stuff. I mean, uh, I, I don't really know where to go. I mean, you know, should be should we? I think people are one uh, after listening to this will be wondering: should I be should I be worried or not about all this, or is or is the future okay? I would be much more worried about the the overall ideology and set of norms, norms of belief in 
the Western world in, in universities in particular than about this particular technology. Technology is a tool. It's always been a tool, whether we're talking about nuclear technology that can be used to create weapons or cheap power. Um, the same thing goes for the ability to manipulate viruses that can create vaccines or lab leaks of COVID, right? Whether it's intentional or not. Um, so I think the same thing applies here. A healthy society is one that looks at this technology and says, yeah, okay, like, you know, maybe people will screen, but they're going to do it in socially beneficial ways. And we probably shouldn't pressure anyone into doing things they don't want and so on. But an unhealthy society, one characterized by social strife and groups competing for resources and punishing each other, the kind that you see in the United States now, which is exporting its beliefs to you guys, that's a society in which I do worry about whether it's this technology or any other new technology. Why? Because again, you get this like this society where groups are more or less striving for political power so they can punish other groups and take resources from those groups. In that kind of society, I never trust governments to regulate technology well. And so my view is the big, big take-home message of where we are right now in the West is not how we should, how we should cope with any particular technology, but how do we recreate the kinds of healthy societies we had decades ago or maybe even centuries ago in some cases what are the conditions in which we flourish? And my view is smaller, more homogenous states. And I don't mean homogenous with respect to everything. Obviously, diversity of thought and expression and all these things are fantastic. But when we have gigantic nation states like the kinds that have developed, actually, really nation technically used to mean homogenous. So it's not a nation state, a giant pluralistic country like the United States or like Canada is trying to become where you say, if diversity is good, then more is even better. And if democracy is good, then even more democracy is better. Those are extraordinarily unhealthy impulses, right? What we do need to do instead is recognize some forms of hierarchy are fantastic. And you can have democracy within hierarchy. Um, but even the founding fathers of the United States absolutely abhorred democracy. They used it as a term of abuse and ridicule to hurl at their opponents. They just thought like we should have some voting and we should have some representation. Not that like the mob should tell you what you should do in every aspect of your life. But right now that's where we are. If, if some democracy is good, more is better. If equality under the law is good, then what we should have is equality in every aspect of life and any inequality indicates some kind of evil. And similarly, if diversity of thought is good, then diversity of every kind is better. Or if tolerance is good, then you should just flood your country with every kind of religion, every kind of people from everywhere. And those are incredibly unhealthy thoughts. And so I think first we need to, we need to fix our societies in ways that are politically healthy. And then, as, as I mentioned earlier, whether we're talking about sex ed classes or what we do about genetic technology, those problems will fix themselves, right? Um, in a healthy society, you don't need to tell your kids, here's what kinds of sex toys you should be learning about in, you know, in seventh grade. It, it's just not a discussion that has to come up at all in school for the most part, right? So let's fix our societies. But maybe that's a talk for, for another occasion, how to do that. Well, Jonathan, we want to thank you. You've been so generous with your time. We, we have a final question. We're, we're on a 
crusade of, of, of a sort to get more people out there reading and to get John reading more as well. So our final question <laughs> is, what are, you, what are you reading right now? Oh, my God. I wish I was reading anything. I'm too busy working. <laughs> um, no, actually, okay, right in front of me is actually just a Greek a, a book of Greek myths. This is like one of those fun ones that you learn in, you know, in, in middle school, you might study it. It's a very um, handsome yeah, book too. Yeah, it looks, looks nice. It is. Yeah, it is a handsome book. You're right. Um, mm. No, I'm mostly just reading articles and uh, working and designing syllabi for my Ecuadorian program. And um, I just finished, uh, as I mentioned, the second edition of my book, which will come out in like six months. So I was reading little bits of behavioral genetics, statistical genetics, these little areas. So no books, but what can I read? Uh, maybe I'll recommend a couple books. How about that? Or recommend yes. some, some, some basic um, reading. Let's see here. Well, I like, um, I really enjoyed Joseph Henrich's last two books. Um, one is called The Weirdest People in the World. Um, weird stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic, um, basically Western societies showing that Western societies are extremely distinct and they uniquely created the conditions for economic growth and the prosperity of science and art and everything else. The West is indeed unique and its people are unique. Um, and he doesn't even give an ex a genetic explanation, so he doesn't get in trouble. I think there's a genetic one too, so I do get in trouble. But um, just a purely cultural explanation is already interesting. He also wrote a book before that called The Secret of Our Success, basically arguing that, you know, genes and cultures co-evolve. So sometimes what happens is culture actually drives genetic change. Um, and that's a really interesting thing. It's not just that genes drive culture or culture drives genes, but both do. Another kind of domain that I like, and I can mention a book in it, is political psychology. So very popular book. It's 12 years old now, but Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, How Good People why good people disagree about politics and religion. I still think that's a really great book and it's a really easy read. And even if he gets a few things wrong and inevitably that happens in science, it's a really nice way to kind of get an overview of why people care so much about politics, why we have so much tribalism. Those are, are great recommendations. Jonathan, I have a recommendation, Creating Future People, The Ethics of Genetic Enhancement, second edition to follow. Sounds like. Yeah, I recommend waiting for the second edition. There's I know, that's why, you have, that's why he was being tricky. He hasn't mentioned, he's like, oh, book, book, book. But if Terry, if it had just come out, you'd be saying the title. So maybe wait for the second edition, people. Yeah, wait for the second edition. It'll be free too, because the, the publishers will make it open access. So yeah. And, and so how, where can, how can people follow you online? What's the, what's the best way to hunt you down? Uh, let's see. Well, I guess my homepage, I post everything there. I don't. I don't like getting a lot of attention, to be honest. You know, I really am like a scholar at heart. So I'm doing these podcasts now, but I don't tweet. I don't, I don't sort of put stuff out there. I don't even Substack, but I do archive what I've written and the, the podcasts I do on my website. So that'll come up first on Google. It's just jonathan-anomaly.com. So of course, happy to, happy to have people read. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll provide a link uh, in our show notes to your website as well. So people can That's check you great. out thanks again so much uh, uh for giving us your time jonathan thanks for having me i hope next time we do more of a discussion so i don't want to just preach so uh, <laughs> get you guys involved next time a little more. well we're gonna have to do a little bit of reading i think and then we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> yes, come out of our yeah. shells sounds good
Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.